Thanks for sharing that, Sally. I appreciate that. We're still waiting on Maya's testimony. Oh, we're still waiting on Maya's testimony. She's like, what? I have to give a testimony? I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. Who wants to hear Maya's testimony? Yeah? That is what we call positive peer pressure. So, you could either do a video or you can come up here next week or some week after that. But we're getting a testimony out of Maya. <laughs> um, how many of you have ever felt like a failure? Oh, you're going to just raise your hands. Okay, yeah. This is Calvary, so we're all kind of comfortable with that. Um, how many of you have ever felt like there's something that you have or you have to deal with that makes failure a lot easier and more likely to happen in your life? And it's this thing that you're having to struggle with, like this monkey on your back that constantly pushes you and drives you to failure over and over again. It's a common thing. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we talk about uh, our week three of Set Me Free. We started this series by asking, what is freedom? If we want to be free from these things, these hurts, habits, hang-ups, these brokenness in our life, we have to know exactly what freedom is, or else we'll run straight out of one cage right into another. If freedom is just not this, whatever, anything else, then we'll run right from one nightmare situation right into another. We'll run from one addiction right into another addiction. We'll run from one bad relationship right into another bad relationship. No, I'm not reading your Facebook. I just know how life works. <laughs> but it's so easy to switch from one thing right to another. And we learned, the first thing we learned was that freedom equals following Jesus. And that Jesus' version of freedom, which is the only true version of freedom that I think exists in the universe, requires being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. Not just someone who believes the things Jesus says, or even things other people have said about Jesus, but actually does and follows Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is how we have the kind of freedom that Jesus offered. Jesus said this, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. He said this to people who had already believed on him. And then he says, and he continues on, that's what a semicolon is, it's connecting these ideas, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth, knowing the truth, and being freed from the truth, through the truth, is a process of following Jesus. There's no other way to get to it. So, last week, we talked about four good self-judgments. These are great questions that we can ask as followers of Jesus to be able to judge things in our lives as to whether it's good or bad, or whether it's bad for us. Because your answers might be different than my answers on something in your life. Does it cause harm? Is there clear instructions or commandments against it? Does it control me now or in my past? Everybody has a different past. Everybody has different vices or things in their life that control them or consume them. And so we need to be honest about those things. And does it build up? Does it edify? Does it lift up or does it tear down? Um, these are, for me, TV shows a lot of times go through this list. You know, I don't, I don't tell you what to watch on TV. I don't talk about movies or television or music. I say, listen to the Holy Spirit and ask yourself, does it cause harm? Is this show causing harm? There's some shows that I watch that are so sarcastic <laughs> that I just want to make all kinds of mean 
nasty humor and I get in this, this vein where I'm just wanting to make all these, these silly jokes and cut people down and then I got to realize, okay, maybe this is not healthy for me to watch this show. There's other shows that are going to uh, exacerbate lust. It's going to grow your lust, you know, because there's a lot of sex scenes or something like that. Um, there could be a, a violence in something and it triggers something and it makes you more edgy or on edge. Um, other stuff, does it control me? Does Netflix control you? Maybe the show is fine, but you just can't turn it off and go to bed so you can get up the next morning and not bite people's heads off. Does it control you now or in your past? So when we ask these questions, we could find out, am I following Christ or am I allowing something else in my life to control me? And we're going to continue on this week. In John chapter 9, it says, in Jesus passed, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. So this guy was born blind. He's never seen light a day in his life. And his disciples asked him, they just flat out asked Jesus the questions we're all dying to know. Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, Jesus, who messed up? Why is, they didn't even ask, why is he blind? Their question really shows their worldview. You know, obviously this guy must have sinned or his parents sinned. Otherwise, why is he blind? Why is God mad at him? Why did God punish him with blindness? Is basically what they're asking. Why was he punished with this ailment, this thing that he has from birth? Was it his parents were rotten people, so they gave him a blind child so they would realize how rotten they are? Or was he bad, and so that's why he was born blind? Which one is it, Jesus? Surely, if he has this weakness, this difficulty, this cage of blindness, right? He's in a cage. He's, he can't see. He has to be um, led around. Um, work is difficult for him. He begs. He's obviously a beggar. Surely if he's stuck in this cage, then somebody sinned. And I think this mindset exists today. You know, maybe we don't look at blind people and think, well, sinner, you okay? <laughs> Hopefully you don't. If that's you, you need to change that worldview because that's not, that's not true. But when it comes to ourselves, and maybe you're even generous towards other people, but when we look at ourselves, surely if I'm having a difficulty in my life, it's that I can't overcome then it must be because I've ticked off God by sinning. Surely, if I have this difficulty that I can't overcome, it must be my fault. It must be because I'm rotten. It must be because I'm a sinner. It must be because I've done something and deserve this, and it's my fault. And surely, otherwise, why wouldn't God help me out of this? Why wouldn't God just help me? I mean, we believe God has the power to heal. I believe God has the power to heal people from addiction, that he could snap his fingers and then the desire would go away. I believe that's real and it can happen. I also believe it's really rare. Why is it so rare? Why does he just do that for more people? I believe God could cure cancer. Why doesn't he more? Why? Why doesn't, why doesn't God help with my ADHD when I really want to serve him and I just can't for the life of me focus on the thing I really want to do. Why doesn't God help with your depression or your anxiety or whatever other thing you're dealing with? Why does it keep coming back up in your life over and over and over again? And I know you've asked this question. And sometimes we don't want to ask the question because we're afraid of what the answer might be. And it scares us. It scares us. And some of us think that 
Surely if I'm having a difficulty in my life that I can't overcome, even with prayer, then it must be because I've ticked God off by sinning. So what does Jesus say? What does Jesus answer to this? Jesus says, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Manifest is a word for display. This guy didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. The point of his blindness is so that the works of God could be shown or displayed through this blind man. The works of God could be shown or displayed. And this is big. This is really big. His purpose, this man's purpose, was that the works of God would be displayed in his life. This man's purpose is that the works of God would be displayed in him. And there's two ways to look at this. Number one is my cynical way of looking at things, which I can't seem to turn off. Wow, God, so you made this guy blind for his whole life just so you could have an illustration? That seems pretty mean. <laughs> That's rude. Come on, like, great illustration, but meanwhile, this guy's blind begging on the street. Whoa, why? How's that okay? God made this man blind so Jesus could have this illustration with his disciples? Or, number two, having the works of God displayed in us is a necessary part of life. What if having the works of God displayed in us and through us is as necessary as oxygen, as food? What if we are built and designed in a way that we need the works of God to be displayed through us to be okay, to be right with the world, to be balanced, to be centered, to be whole, to be healthy? We need the works of God displayed in us and through us. What if that's the case? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm reading through 1 Corinthians with my friend Seth. I love it. He just texts me and be like, hey, I'm reading through Peter. You wanna join, if you want to join me, you're welcome. And then we, we read through and we text back and forth all day long about whatever chapter we're on. We finished Peter. We're in uh, 1 Corinthians now. I really encourage you to do that. You could actually use the YouVersion Bible app and pick a plan and pick a friend and invite the friend to the plan. You read the plan together, including the devotional. At the end, there's a little comment section where you could type in, you have to you answer a question or two, and you have this conversation about the scripture you're reading, and they could do it on their time, you could do it on your time, but because it's social, it gives you that extra boost of, oh, Joey Frady's waiting on my comments, so I better get my reading done today, which is really cool. So I encourage you to do that. Check out the YouVersion Bible app. Um, I think it's great to get a plan. Then your phone dings all crazy. and tells you to read the Bible instead of checking Facebook memes or something. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Corinthian church is really dysfunctional. The Corinthian church has got a lot of problems. And Paul is writing to them to help them out to grow in their faith. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Corinthian church was having this problem where they were arguing who had the better mentor. So one person's in Paul's small group, another person's in Apollos' small group, 
And they're like, well, my mentor's better, or my teacher's better, or I was discipled by Pastor Joe, or I was discipled by Pastor Ron, or I was discipled by Alan, you know, or these other people. And they're arguing back and forth over who had the best mentor, who had the best discipler. And Paul and Apollos had gone house to house sharing the Scripture. So verse 1, he says he didn't use excellent words or words of, of man's wisdom to declare the text testimony of God. Does this mean that we should never use good words or wisdom or logic in our preaching and teaching? No. It doesn't. It doesn't. It meant at this season of Paul's life, and the reason I know is because in Acts chapter 17, Paul talks to all of the intellectuals in Athens on Mars Hill, and he uses all sorts of rhetoric and illustrations. He says, I want to tell you about this unknown God. In other places, Paul stands before governors. Many of the scriptures, Paul is using all kinds of rhetoric and logic and reasoning. So what is going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul, who is very gifted as a speaker, as a thinker, he drops all of that and says, when I was with you, I dropped all of that skill that I have in rhetoric and logic and thinking and wisdom and excellent speech and instead... I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. At this season in Paul's life and ministry, he was focused on understanding something profound. He was focused on meditating and understanding Jesus Christ and specifically Him crucified. What it meant for Jesus to die. To give up everything. To become completely and totally selfless and give of himself. And Paul is leaning into this. He says, And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and much trembling. And my speech, and my preaching, was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I see two things here. One is the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Paul is demonstrating God's Spirit and its power. Why? Because he wants their faith to rest completely and totally in God's power. So, how do you demonstrate God's power? Ever thought about that? That's like a week-long question. It's one of those ones you just chew on. How do I demonstrate God's power? What does that mean? What does it mean to demonstrate God's power? How does one demonstrate the spirit and power of God. It's not by big words. It's not by big words. It's not by lofty speech. It's not by showy acts. It's not by superior reasoning or intelligence that we demonstrate the power of God. It's not in our strengths. Wouldn't it be nice if you just told us how to demonstrate the spirit and power of God? Why not just write it down clearly for us? Well, he did. In verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Those are not attributes that I think of when I think of, man, I want to be a great pastor. I want to be a great leader. Or maybe you want to be a great leader at your job or a great leader at your home. So you think, you know what I need? More weakness, more fear, and more trembling. If I just had some more weakness, more fear, and more trembling. I would be a better boss at work. I would lead my 
my construction crew better. I would lead my, my IT team or I would be able to do better if I had more weakness, more fear, more trembling. No, I don't want that. No, thank you. <laughs> I have plenty of that. I don't, want, I don't want any more. I don't want to downplay that. I want to get rid of that. Weakness, fear, and trembling. These are the moments that describe our greatest failure. When we are in weakness, when we are in fear, and when we are trembling. You ever been so messed up and so broken and so convinced that you would not be loved or ever experience belonging again that your body was shaking? I can't be found out. I can't be known. I can't be seen. You ever been in a place where you've just so wrong that you're literally trembling? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? These moments describe our greatest failure, but these are the moments that display God's greatest power. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul explains this concept even more clearly. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 7 he says, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations. He had just talked about in the first six verses all these revelations that God had shown him. I mean, he gets to write Scripture and, and God had shown him a lot of cool things. He says, unless I be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And he describes this thorn in the flesh, this really bad inconvenience. He says, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, I haven't been buffeted recently, but I have been harassed. I didn't know what that word meant, so I looked it up. It just means harass. A messenger of Satan to harass me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, I don't know if you have ever struggled with mental illness, but to me, a messenger of Satan that harasses me is a perfect description of mental illness. That's a perfect description of ADHD that I've had since I was a little kid. A messenger of Satan to harass me. Hey, hey, let's go outside. Let's go outside and play. Why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? I think you heard a noise. You better go check on it. You don't want to do that. You don't do your homework. You don't do that. Why don't you go flick your sister in the ear? Forget that. Let's flick her in the eye. Let's just see what happens, man. Like it's just a million thoughts a second into my brain. It doesn't turn off. You don't grow out of it. Maybe you did. I didn't. I'm almost 40 years old, and I'm still like that little 10-year-old kid that won't shut up. Right? I just talk for a living now. It's crazy. A messenger of Satan to harass me. I was talking with a, a friend this week, and he was telling me about his OCD and how it's, it's flared up. He's been triggered. He's had a, an OCD kind of moment. And he's talking about how he just constantly has these thoughts that he doesn't, he knows like on one hand that they're not true, but still they constantly come at him, and come at him, and come at him. And they accuse him of things. He's got to go check to make sure and reassure himself over and over. And I have no idea what OCD is like. But that sounds like a messenger of Satan to harass him. My, my younger sister deals with anxiety. And I don't know what that's like. But having a constant thought that's telling you a million things to worry about in every moment. A messenger of Satan to harass you. 
I haven't had to deal with depression, thankfully. At least not chronic depression. But to have constant thoughts telling you there's no hope. No hope. No try. Messenger of Satan to arrest. And our culture deals with mental illness constantly. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, uh, a mental illness that's a, a chronic thing. I'm, but we have, we all, like it's in our society, we're, we're passing out drugs left and right to deal with these things or try to deal with these things or try to medicate these things. But we have these things. We, in our church, we have these things. Many of us deal with these things. Maybe we talk about it. Maybe you don't talk about it. Maybe you suffer quietly. Maybe you don't even have a diagnosis or a label on it. But you're dealing with stuff. You have a messenger of Satan that constantly harasses you. Sounds like addiction to me. It's constantly telling me to do the exact thing that will destroy my life. It won't stop. It describes a lot of things. And Paul had one of these things. I think the Scripture is brilliant in that he doesn't tell us exactly what it is so that we can all relate with whatever it was. Maybe it's a physical ailment. Some think his eyes were possibly going. And we have physical ailments in our church where you have constantly, you want to do the thing for God, you want to do the thing for your family, you want to take care of people, but your physical body will not cooperate. It just won't cooperate. And so you're trapped. And you have this, this monkey that is your own body that just will not stop harassing you. And you have chronic pain. And it won't stop harassing Unwanted reoccurring thoughts, depression, anxiety, ADHD, addiction, physical illness. Paul prayed that God would take it away. Whatever his was, Paul prayed that God would take it away. And surely the guy who writes Bible is spiritual enough and faithful enough that God would be like, all right, you've earned it, buddy. We're going to go ahead and fix that one for you. Is that what God does? Paul says, I, I brought this to the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. I besought the Lord. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. Now, it's taken me a long time to understand this passage of Scripture. And I think in about 20 years, I might really be able to preach this well. Because whatever season of life we're in, we, we only know so much. 1 Corinthians 13 says, we see through a glass dimly. And, but someday we'll see clearly and we'll be known fully as we are fully known by God. So I'm going to tell you what I believe and what I've experienced in my life to this point. God says my grace is sufficient for thee. That part means I have given you grace. Now just that part alone has taken me a long time because I felt really guilty for using God's grace. Like if I use God's grace, doesn't that mean like I was a scumbag and I needed help? Right? <laughs> I mean, if someone buys your meal because you can't afford it, that's grace. And if you got pride or ego, any at all, a tiny little bit, it's going to hurt. Oh, they had to do this because I couldn't afford it. And someone had to take care of me. That was grace. It was a kindness. It's generosity. So, does that mean that I'm bad if God has to give me grace? Does that mean I'm worthless if I have to receive grace? Does grace, does my usage of grace and my personal value 
And my worthiness inside, does it go up and down based on how much grace I use? No. I used to think those were connected, but they're not. They're not connected. My worth doesn't change. My value in God's eyes is the same. And God says, my grace is sufficient for thee. God gives us grace because I need to live and breathe and walk in grace to be healthy. It's like saying, oh, I feel so bad I have to use the oxygen in the atmosphere. Oh, I'm so sorry. I had to take a deep breath. I held it for as long as I could. I just couldn't (laughs) inhale. No, I need grace. I need grace. It's the acknowledgement that I'm not okay without Him and I need Him. That's the next part. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The second part is clear. The power of God is displayed through our weakness, not our strength. The power of God is displayed through our weakness and not our strength. This is hard because people who are religious and church leaders, they have a lot of strengths, right? They can sing, they can do cool messages, they wear cool clothes. My, uh, my buddy Doug, who did the concert last night, he had purple shoes on. He's a black pastor. He's a, awesome. I love Doug. I'm like, you got to take me shopping so I can get some shiny purple shoes. I don't know. Yeah, what do you guys think? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? And Allison says yes. Okay. My wife probably won't let me in the house, though. <laughs> but you know, you see people up front in ministry or in church world or and it seems like they have a lot of strength. We see leaders, and it seems like they have a lot of strength. And God uses those for teaching and things like that. But the power of God is displayed through our weakness, not our strength. The power of you is displayed through your strength. The power of you is displayed through your strength. And when that is under the power of God, when it is under God's leading and direction and you're using your skills and your abilities to do things for the body of Christ and the kingdom of God, that's awesome. It's great. We need that. But the real power of God is displayed in our weakness, not our strength. It's displayed through your weakness and your vulnerability. Do you want to walk in the power of God or the power of you? How does one display their weakness to demonstrate the power of God? What's the best way to be vulnerable? This is XKCD, which is fantastic. This is like the nerd, nerd encyclopedia. But um, I love it. I mean, let's be honest here, okay? I don't understand why anything happens. And I'm confused and scared and trying really, really hard all the time. Ooh, too honest. Scale it back. <laughs> you ever feel that way? Like when you actually tell somebody what's going on, they're like, whoa, I was not ready for that. Too much overshare. Let's kind of roll it back. You know, I just wanted a little bit so I could feel good and we could have this conversation. I didn't actually want to hear the whole thing. Uh, right? So how do you do vulnerability well? Melissa shared in her testimony last week that you learned if you're not vulnerable, then you can't be used by God. And 
If you want to be used by God, you're going to have to be vulnerable. That's that's part of it. And I've learned that too, and I preach that. But how do we do that well? How do we as Christians, as a body of Christ, do vulnerability well? I'm not saying that you should go post on Facebook all the details of your life. I'm not saying that you should go into work Monday and dump on your boss and be like, look, I got this mental illness, and I got this thing, and I got that thing, and I just want to be vulnerable. (laughs) Please don't do that. That is not healthy. That is not good. Not everyone is a safe person. And oversharing can sometimes be a form of manipulation. Right? Oversharing can be a form of manipulation. When you pull someone aside, you tell them your big, ugly story, you know, because you know they're going to feel sorry for you or it's going to set up a relationship in a certain way or you have some expectation. Or, I think part of the scary thing is that we overshare because we want them to carry some of that responsibility. And we're not used to carrying it ourselves. And so we're, we're hoping, you know, that they'll hold us accountable, that they'll take this responsibility on, that they'll do this thing for us, and it'll be off our back, and off our shoulders, because we shared it. We're not asking others to take responsibility for our weakness. We're not asking others to enable our weakness. We don't share our weakness so people will just give us a pass. Oh yeah, you know, he struggles with this or that, so it's just okay. He could just do it. He could just be harmful because he's got this thing or this issue. We're not claiming our weakness as an excuse to do harm or ignore what is good. We are sharing our weakness with appropriate levels of transparency that's built on earned trust. And we earn trust by demonstrating trustworthiness consistently over time. Trust is earned by demonstrating trustworthiness consistently over time. When someone shows that they can be trusted in small things, that you tell them, hey, don't don't tell anybody about this, but this is going on in my life. And they pray, and then nobody knows. Oh, okay, they were trustworthy. Or you ask them to help, and they show up. You can rely on them. They start demonstrating trustworthiness. We share within, within the body of Christ, before we share without, outside the body of Christ. And small groups is one of the environments really designed to help you display the power of God in your life. How do we do this well? We can't just all stand up and give testimonies and dump our whole lives every Sunday. We take a long time might not be helpful. And as you know, we're all in different areas of growth. So, you know, dumping in this season might not be healthy for everybody else. But it might be healthy for you to share with another person. Small groups is one of the environments that our church uses and that is designed to help you display the power of God in your life. To sit with a group of people where you can earn trust over time and share your weaknesses. This is what's going on. I'm struggling with this. Pray for me. This is my goal. I'm not successful. Help. Pray for me. I want to make it known in this space. I want people to be able to see this weakness and this vulnerability, and I want to talk about it. We meet weekly. We establish trust over time. And then you can share more of your story You could share your weakness. You can pray. You can apply Scripture. 
And we can work out our salvation as we grow together. We set goals so that our weaknesses don't control or consume us. And when someone begins reading consistently in our small group, who has never been able to read the Bible before, or they spit and spurt and spit and spurt and spit and spurt, and then all of a sudden they take off, and it's like, whoa, that's the power of God, because obviously they don't have the power to do it, or else they would have done it a long time ago. When someone starts to do things in spite of their anxiety, it doesn't go away. Maybe it does, maybe God heals it. But when they feel they can have the confidence to do something, even though the, the harassing monkey is still there on their back, and we're like, wow, that's the display of the power of God. When someone in our, in our small group who would just doesn't want to speak out loud at all, and then they, they pray. And you're like, they just prayed. Like, that's a big, this is the power of God. This is the display of the power of God. Or they share their story and they open up and allow us to love them through this, this thing they're going through. That's a display of the power of God. Because they didn't have the ability to do that before, and now they do. Now they do. It's a display of God's power. When someone who is um, anxious about speaking opens up and shares, when we start succeeding at our job or some other thing that we just couldn't do before, we were failing at, it's a demonstration of the power of God. This weakness once ruled me, but now this weakness has become a place of strength because God is with me. So, why do you have weakness in your life? Why do you have weakness in your life? That thing that causes you to constantly fail in the same place in the same way. Why do you have that? Because you sinned? Because your parents sinned? Or is it because you're wired that the works of God should be displayed through you? And if that's the case, then maybe we need to lighten up a little bit. Maybe I need to not feel so garbage when I have to get on my knees and say, God, I can't concentrate to help. Maybe I don't have to feel like a total other, utter failure in that moment. Maybe when your anxiety is just taking off and skyrocketing and you have to get on your knees and you can't sleep and you're just bawling your eyes out before God, maybe in that moment we could say, thank you that I could do this. That you're there. You're there. And we can instead look at, look at these things. I, I, an idea that I've been thinking about is built-in governors. The governor is something they put in a vehicle so it only goes so fast. So that guys like me don't have fun. <laughs> so, you know, it only goes to 55 and then it's going to like shut down the engine or, you know. Um, and we have built-in governors as human beings. We can only go so hard so fast for so long. And then we shut down. Our bodies shut down. We get sick. We, we, we're not, no longer the person we want to be. Jesus said like this. He said, the spirit is willing, uh, but the flesh is weak. We have built-in governors. And some of these things that we struggle with are built-in governors. They're things that are going to constantly crop up in our life so that we turn to God. And that's okay. That's okay. This man's purpose 
is that the works of God would be displayed through him. And your purpose is that the works of God would be displayed and revealed in you. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that we would open our hearts and our minds to change how we think about the the pain that we're dealing with in our lives. Instead of beating ourselves up, instead of pointing to this weakness as proof of our worthlessness, God, I pray that as Paul, we would be able to figure out and comprehend what it means to glory in our infirmities, our weakness, so that the power of Christ will rest upon us. To actually not welcome it, but but to understand when these moments come and it drives us to you, this is good. This is good. To understand that in our weakness, when we are driven to you, you want to use us. You will display yourself through us. You will teach through us. And this teaching, this process, this display will change us. God, I pray that I would lean into that. I pray I would be able to believe it. I pray I, pray I would be able to accept it in my mind and in my heart to lead in this way. And God, I pray for each person here who's struggling with a messenger from Satan to harass them, whatever that might be. I pray they would hear clearly that this does not point to their worthlessness. This is a call from their father to surrender their weakness, to allow you to have a place to live and move in our hearts, our lives. Help us to trust you in this this week. Help us to to try this on, to work this out, to, to figure out how this works this week as we wrestle with you. In Jesus' name, amen.